Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Okay, hi everyone. Today we're going to be talking about how gastrointestinal dysfunction is really one of the earliest uh, um, signs of brain brain dysfunction. So I can tell you that there's a lot of people that suffer from chronic gastrointestinal issues and they really don't understand that it really could be related to the brain. And uh, I can I can also tell you just from experience um, over 20 years of clinical practice, you know, one of the things you see all the time is you see a patient that has gone from one practitioner to the next practitioner to the next practitioner, all experts in the gastrointestinal tract, all experts in the gut, trying various diets, various various nutraceuticals, various protocols, and they have no uh, no benefits. They don't really see any improvements. And there's several reasons why that can happen, um, but one of them is that there's a brain component to it. So what I want to do uh, in this uh, discussion is really share with you uh, the basic concepts of how the brain impacts the gastrointestinal system. And why sometimes when you have things like chronic constipation or chronic gastrointestinal issues, then it may really be a brain-related, brain-related problem. And when I say brain-related problem, there's really um, a few groups. One group of brain-related problem is early neurodegeneration. Uh, we'll talk about that. Another group is uh, traumatic brain injury. Uh, we know that brain injuries catch up with us years later and not necessarily immediately after the accident. Um, another group of that, another group is... Uh, autoimmunity. Lots of people have subtle neurological autoimmunity where they get uh, destruction of different regions of the brain that that then may impact their gut function based on what areas are injured. And then there's also neurodevelopment. So when you look at the classification of neurodegeneration diseases, especially Parkinson's disease and traumatic brain injury and subtle neurological autoimmunity in, in children with neurodevelopment disorders, you actually have a pretty large group of people that have chronic gastrointestinal issues that no one can figure out because, again, it's not really a gut issue. So in order for me to really explain these concepts to you, let me explain to you how the brain really controls and controls the gut. So the cortex, you have different regions of the brain, and the brain has to basically activate the brainstem. And in the brainstem, there's a nuclei called the vagus, and then the vagus then activates uh, the gastrointestinal tract. And the key things that the, that the neurological impact of the brain is to the gut is that, number one, it has an autonomic effect. And when we say autonomic effect, that is related to releasing digestive enzymes. So these things just they happen by themselves. You have no volitional conscious thought of actually releasing your own digestive enzymes. So um, the, the release of digestive enzymes, smooth muscle contractions, the muscles in your gastrointestinal tract that move food are all under autonomic control. So the... There's an area of the brain, there's actually multiple regions of the brain itself, areas in the insular cortex, areas throughout the limbic system um, that all control autonomic function, and they all integrate into an area of the brainstem called the vagus, um, specifically 
um, the dorsal nucleus of the vagus, and that controls things like blood flow to the gut, an enzyme release, and smooth muscle contraction. So if any of these areas of the brain get injured that actually impact the vagus, you can have some serious issues with how, you, how your digestive system works. And this happens all the time with, with things like subtle neurological autoimmunity. This happens years later with a traumatic brain injury, like prime glial cells. Again, it can happen with neurodevelopmental disorders and so forth. So that can lead to autonomic functions. So one of the key things to understand about your gut function is your gut function doesn't just work on its own, that it has to get input from the brain to control these, these uh, physiological functions. Now, another part of the brain called the motor strip is involved with activating, causing contraction of your uh, input into your vagus as well. Sometimes people, everyone, like nowadays, the vagus become really popular. Everyone is now all these things about the vagus. They don't realize the vagus, first of all, the vagus rarely gets injured. The vagus rarely dysfunctions on its own. It's a deep uh, lateral lower brainstem uh, nuclei. Really what happens when you see vagal dysfunction is areas of the brain that are dysfunctioning. But, you know, vagus is not popular, so everyone has all the things of the vagus. But the key thing to remember is the vagus is getting input from different regions. So there's an area of the brain called the motor strip that activates uh, the autonomics, the, the muscles in what's called the nucleus ambiguous, which is another area of the brainstem of the vagus, which then causes smooth muscles to contract. And then you have the area where you have autonomic function. So you have the frontal, you have the motor strip area of the brain that controls how your gut moves. You have areas throughout your brain that control your autonomic function that then fire into the vagus. Your gut actually has to have a normal uh, circadian rhythm. And gastrointestinal cells have a normal circadian rhythm of when they're, like, your, your, your gut gets adapted to when you're asleep and when you're awake and when, it, when it's time for it to start to digest. And those uh, circadian rhythm functions are not just for, you know, day-night cycles, but they're really for uh, a normal pattern of your gut. There's areas of the brain called the hippocampus that really control that. There's areas of the brain um, with the pineal gland and a nucleus called the suprachiasmatic nucleus that control those circadian rhythms of the gut. Those can get injured and lead to chronic gastrointestinal issues. And then there's areas of the brain that are involved that are called introceptive processing where input from your gut uh, goes to your brain. So your brain actually knows where your small intestine is and your large intestine is and it can it can coordinate and sense food and uh a need for contraction in those areas. Any of these areas of the brain that get injured, everything from the motor strip to the suprachiasmatic nuclei to pineal lobe injury to areas in the hippocampus to insulin parietal cortex, if they get injured, you can have some devastating effects on the gut. And you're not going to fix it by treating the gut. You may need to treat the gut to have function and be able to digest your food, but really what you may really have is, is a brain-related issue. So uh, it's, a, it's a lot of neurology terminology, but let's just make it really simple. And I hate, and I hate when I do that because then I realize I did that and it gets confusing for everyone. That, you know, I didn't have a background on uh, some of these terms. But very simply put, there's, your gut function is totally dependent upon brain function. And different areas of your brain control different aspects of the, of the gut through the vagus nerve. Even though the vagus nerve is really popular these days, and well, I don't know why, but uh, it is become very popular, really the bigger issue with the vagus is input into the vagus that's, that's dysfunctional. So areas in the brain that control muscle contraction, blood flow, enzymes, um, are all involved with, with these uh, imbalances in the gut. Now, if any of those areas are injured or dysfunctional, 
then you can have ongoing and chronic gastrointestinal problems. So let's start with the different categories now where you can have these problems. And by the way, when a patient has these chronic, one of the first red flags that the brain could be involved is if they show up with a patient, they show up with a clinical pattern or they're doing everything right. Despite doing everything right, they still have gastrointestinal symptoms. And if you do everything right and you still have gastrointestinal symptoms, then uh, you really first suspect that you may have a brain-to-gut access issue. And, and by the way, these uh, the reason we're talking about a lot of gut topics recently is because we have a course that we just actually launched, uh, released today. It's called um, Gut Health Solving the Puzzle. And in this program, I'm going to teach you a thought process of how to figure out what's going on with your gut, just like I'm doing with you now, but in more detail with flowcharts and, uh, you know, and the, the luxury of time and and diagrams that we can't do in a live Facebook of, of how to figure out what's going on. So the biggest problem we have with people that have chronic gastrointestinal issues is they just try everything. They don't know what to do. And they're hoping for like a magic probiotic or a magic supplement or removal of certain food for everything to be fixed. And it's really not that simple. Um, so in the gut health solving the puzzle, this is not a course that we teach protocols. It's a course that we actually teach you how to think through the process and try to figure out what's going on with you. That it really is the biggest missing link of what's out there. What happens is people start to think, oh, it's all about SIBO, it's all about leaky gut, it's all about this, and it's not true. You can have multiple things happening. So uh, in the gut health solving the puzzle, what we're trying to do that's very unique is actually teach you the thought process of how to figure out what's going on with you uh, if you're having any gastrointestinal problems. Now, if you have chronic gastrointestinal problems and nothing has been able to help you, then you have a certain list of things that may be a factor, and one of them is the brain. Now, people that have brain dysfunction leading to gut dysfunction, they're going to come in maybe sometimes with no signs of brain dysfunction or nothing that's very obvious. Sometimes um, there is some clear patterns. But usually with things like neurodegeneration, it happens very slowly over time, so people miss the connection. Um, with things like traumatic brain injury that cause brain gut dysfunctions, those are very hard to pick up for the patient because it doesn't happen right after the brain injury. Once a brain has an injury, there's an inflammatory response that takes place that then cascades to pools of neurons throughout the brain. And over a period of time, there seems to be dysfunction that develops. This is the, the model of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, where people get an injury to the brain. This is known as CTE, where the injury then continues to progress. And over five years later, they have some serious problems. This happens with, for example, football players and soldiers that have had blast injuries. Lots of research has been published on those recently. I should say the past 10 years. So um, that's not obvious to them. Um, kids that have uh, neurodevelopmental disorders, parents don't understand why their kids have sensitivity to, to gluten and can't digest food and always have gastrointestinal problems. Well, because the brain's not developing in these areas, so they can't process their food. And then there's a lot of people that have subtle... Um, neurological autoimmunity, especially those that have things like uh, celiac disease or Hashimoto's. They have, they don't know it, but if they were to get the blood measured, many of them have neurological antibodies, like myelin basic protein antibodies. And even on some MRI findings of white matter hyperintensities, which are lesions in the brain from this subtle autoimmune response. So most people that have a brain to gut access issue don't really see the connection because it's not that obvious to them. Okay. So that's the first thing you need to to really understand about this connection. Now, when you look at the when you look at these um, these mechanisms and these connections, um, let's start with um, first of all, 
the fact that they don't know that they have a brain-related issue, and essentially, what kind of gut problems are they going to have? Is when the brain gut axis is involved, it could be all types of things. One of the most common ones is chronic constipation. Like they just cannot have regular bowel movements. So if, and, and the reason why you would have different symptoms is which regions of the brain are injured or involved, uh, whether from injury or from autoimmune or demyelination or from lack of development or whatever the case may be. But if you, one of the most common symptoms is con- chronic constipation. So chronic constipation is an issue that really uh, be a red flag that there's something going on with the brain because the brain actually controls activity of smooth muscles and contraction. Um, so some people have to have laxatives every single day. Some people have to use stool softeners every single day to have a bowel movement. That's a red flag. Some people have to do enemas to have a bowel movement uh, or they don't have a bowel movement. They have to do you know, for sure. So those are all red flags for a potential brain gut access disorder. Now, other things could be involved too, but just we're going to stick to today's topic, uh, brain gut dysfunction. Now, um, another common one is people end up with um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is lack of can, lack of coordination closing the small and large intestine valves. So bacteria moves from the large intestine to the small intestine. Chronic SIBO can be a gut brain issue. Where everything they eat, protein, starch, and farbs, cause distension and bloating. Um, people that have brain-related disorders, sometimes they can't tolerate eating. As soon as they eat, they, they get dizzy or they pass out. They have poor blood flow uh, autonomics. So another major red flag for brain gut disorders is what we call dysautonomia, where the autonomic system dysfunctions. And this is related to, for example, people that have dysautonomia. They may notice the heart rate is racing all the time. They may notice that they get anxiety that comes and goes. They may notice other people notice the pupils are dilated weird at different times of the day. Um, they may just start to sweat for no reason. Um, and, th- and these are just dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. These are very common after uh, traumatic brain injuries. Um, and these are very common after neurological autoimmune destruction against the brain that sometimes takes place that's subtle. But dysautonomias um, have a pattern where it's not just constipation issues. They just, like when they eat, especially if they eat a large meal, they can't process it. They can't control how blood flow coordinates to your gut and away from brain and other tissues. So normally when you eat, your, your autonomic nervous system has to coordinate how much blood to send to your gut so you can digest the food. It's part of the normal process, right? And if the brain's autonomic center is not functioning well, it has a really hard time controlling the redistribution of blood to the gut. And you can get all types of weird symptoms. So people will say, I don't like to eat because when I eat, I get vertigo. I don't like to eat because when I eat, I get, uh, I can't think, I can't focus and concentrate for three or four hours. Uh, it doesn't matter what I eat. It's not a food sensitivity. It's an autonomic dysfunction, right? So those things happen. Um, so those are another red flag that it may be a brain gut access disorder. People that have chronic um, bacterial yeast overgrowths, um, nothing, nothing ever fixes it can be a brain gut disorder. Because if there is an intestinal motility, then you, you, you really can't move food products. You really have the tendency for yeast to have developed an overgrowth syndrome and bacteria to have an overgrowth syndrome to take place. So you can actually see all types of imbalances. And if you did a comprehensive digestive stool analysis with looking for markers of digestion and absorption and all these things, they would probably all be um, um, abnormal when the brain gut axis isn't working. So it's critical that you, you know, you rule out the brain if you have chronic gastrointestinal issues. So um, that's the presentation of it. Now, whenever 
is uh, so when you when you learn how to do a thought process to figure out what's going on with the gut, you first have to go, what are the red flags? So let's talk about neurodegeneration first. And the most common neurodegenerative disease that really impacts the gut is Parkinson's disease. Okay, and Parkinson's disease actually starts in the gastrointestinal tract. The Parkinson's disease is a disease where this protein called alpha-synuclein builds up in the gut. It uh, doesn't get cleared out like it should. And, and this protein gets in the way of neurons normally functioning, and you start to get degeneration. And one of the earliest symptoms of Parkinson's disease, 10 to even 20 years before, you actually start to have tremor, which most people think of a, a resting tremor, where you see someone's hands shaking, with Parkinson's disease. Um, uh, that, that period of time between the tr- uh, constipation and tremor can be 10, 20 years. So tremor is one of the last signs of per- development of Parkinson's. The earliest sign is constipation. So a lot of people that have chronic gut issues, chronic constipation, you, one of the first things you want to realize is that Parkinson's disease. Now, age is a key thing. You're not going to be thinking Parkinson's disease in someone who's 25. However, there are young onset Parkinson's disease that start at age 35 to 45, um, and they're about 10 to 15% of the, of the Parkinson's disease population. The majority of people that have Parkinson's disease and have a brain gut issue are the ones that are obviously older. So once you start getting past page 50 and, you know, and as every year goes by, there's a greater probability of a neurodegenerative disease. But in the older population, 50, 60 and older, um, and um, you definitely have to rule that out. Now, one of the earliest signs of Parkinson's disease, like we talked about, is chronic constipation because the generation takes place in their gut. The next ones are loss of smell, especially to coffee, uh, anise, uh, and peppermint. Some studies have shown that. That's another early sign of Parkinson's disease. And then just rigidity and stiffness. And usually starts in one limb, like a like a frozen shoulder that's always tight or a frozen hip that's always tight. They're always getting muscle work and maybe muscle work relieves it for a couple hours, but then it comes right back. And that may happen for five or 10 years. And in those cases, it's a neurodegenerative disease. And uh, if it's impacting the motility of the gut, um, you know, you're not going to just take a digestive supplement and fix that. So the, so your prognosis and what you expect to get out of an outcome it could, be, could be totally different. Maybe at that point, you really have to focus on saving your brain and focusing on um, doing strategies to improve your brain function. And also... On Dr. K News, not only do we have the Gut Health Puzzle Program, but we put together a program called Save Your Brain, which which goes into how to teach you how to look at diet, nutrition, lifestyle factors, and support your brain. But in any case, the, the point is that the gut issue may really be a brain-related issue. So that's one of the key things about Parkinson's disease. Now, if you wait to get full-blown tremor and resting tremor and like a mask face where you have an expressionless face and stiffness, those that's really uh, waiting too long. You want to jump on it as soon as possible. You want to improve your brain function as possible. Now, the other key thing that's an early sign of, of maybe why some may have really Parkinson's besides the constipation issue and rigidity and stiffness is they have poor handwriting. The handwriting gets smaller. So one of the things that happens with uh, Parkinson's disease is there is some degenerative changes that take place in a pathway that impacts the dopaminergic drug pathway where it impacts amplitude of muscle activity and if it's not working well you tend to get cramping before you get very obvious hand cramping your your handwriting will get smaller this is called micrographia so if you take a piece of paper and write a sentence let's say 15 times in a row like today's a sunny day and you keep writing it if your font size starts to get smaller that's another that's another sign of um, rigidity or stiffness 
Now, some people that have early Parkinson's don't have chronic constipation. Some just have autonomic dysfunction. Um, so anytime you, so anytime you have a chronic gut issue, and if Parkinson's disease runs in your family, but you're noticing micrographia, hand cramping, uh, you're noticing stiffness, uh, rigidity, uh, frozen shoulder, you, you may want to get a very thorough workup of what's happening with your brain, right? So that's that's the most common neurodegenerative disease that impacts the gut. Now, other other diseases can also impact the gut, but that's the most common one, and that's the one that slowly comes on, which people miss. So sometimes, uh, you know, your earliest findings of, of uh, Parkinson's disease, if you go to an astute clinician, they will they will they will start with your GI tract issues and kind of figure out from your other findings that that may be an issue. So that's that. Now, if that's the case, you, then you have to figure out how to optimize your gut. You may need to take digestive enzymes, you may need to take probiotics, you may need to take a lots of uh, uh, dietary changes to improve your gut function because there's really a degenerative process happening in the gut. And if you do those things, they can help reduce your inflammation and potentially impact the progression of your inflammatory risk factors that can promote the autoimmune disease, but your prognosis changes. And that's really important too. You know, a lot of times when people have chronic gut issues, they just feel like there could be a hidden parasite or some kind of food they missed or something, and they're so frustrated and confused. And sometimes when they understand the mechanism, it becomes a lot easier to, to deal with the condition. So we talked about one group of people that bring gut disorders, which is neurodegeneration, most common be Parkinson's. Let me move on to the next group. The next group of people that have brain gut, brain gut disorders are people that have neurological autoimmunity. Now, the most obvious one is if someone's diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, um, and if you see any kind of you know, on MRI, white matter lesions, which uh, occur in specific areas, like in the lateral brain stem, that can impact the vagus. If it impacts areas of the insular cortex, areas of the limbic system, um, those can impact that just a function. Because remember, the brain actually activates the vagus. And if those centers are injured, then you can have some significant types of dysfunction. Now, if you've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, then that, that can... Diagnosis can be maybe easier to find, but there's a lot of people that have subtle neurological autoimmunity. They don't have significant deficit where all of a sudden they can't walk or all of a sudden they don't feel part of their face or something that's very obvious. They have subtle neurological autoimmunities uh, where some of these areas of the brain get injured um, and those patterns can be found with blood testing for antibodies. And the, and the conditions you would consider a risk factor for those is if you have an obvious celiac disease history, lots of celiac disease patients develop neurological autoimmunity. Um, and it's right, right up there with it is Hashimoto's. A lot of Hashimoto's patients have neurological autoimmunity as well. And when I say neurological autoimmunity, I mean they have antibodies, immune systems not only attacking their gut for celiac or their thyroid for Hashimoto's, it's really also attacking their brain. And uh, they attack the white matter sheath uh, that goes around nerves called myelin. And those people have myelin antibodies, myelin basic protein, mycoglycoprotein. Um, and, and some of those patients, if they progress far enough, an MRI can even actually show these what are called white matter hyperintensities all throughout it. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people are now showing up with these white matter hyperintensities throughout the brain. So a lot of radiologists are just calling it a normal variant. It's not a normal variant. And lots of papers have been published in the scientific literature saying don't call these white matter hyperintensities normal variants. Even though it's happening more and more in the population, it's not normal. It's, it's, it's a change in the signal of the MRI, which means the tissue has been, has been changed, that it, the tissue is injured. But um, that's its own 
controversy in medicine right now. But the fact is, is that a lot of people do have these subtle white matter injuries. So if you have chronic um, gastrointestinal issues and nothing's been able to fix it, and you have a history of celiac disease and you have a history of um, Hashimoto's or lupus or any other type of autoimmune disease, you may want to ask your doctor to start running antibodies um, for your brain and see if any of, see if any of those show up. That would exp- and, or even do an MRI and see if there's any any issues with your brain gut access issue. So that's the the second group of people that have these brain gut access issues that typically go get ignored. And a third group is the um, patient population where we have traumatic brain injuries. And and by the way, neurological autoimmunity doesn't matter what age you are. You can have neurological autoimmunity as a child. You can have it as an adult. Uh, so that's different than neurodegeneration. Neurodegeneration, you're definitely thinking about an older population. But neurological autoimmunity, you you could be any age group. But the key key thing that would make you think that that could be an issue is if you if you already have an underlying autoimmune disease. Now, third group uh, is traumatic brain injury. And with traumatic brain injury. Um, you can definitely injure areas of the brain that then input into the vagus. And the interesting thing about traumatic brain injuries are that um, about 40 to 60% of people that get traumatic brain injuries, studies have found, have some type of dysautonomia, meaning they, they lose their autonomic function, and that impacts their gut. But it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. So one of the major breakthroughs of understanding brain injuries is that once you get a brain injury, there's cells in the brain called glial cells, they get activated and they change the structure and they become what are called prime glial cells. And they continue the inflammatory cascade years and years after the injury. And that inflammatory cascade is like a forest fire. It just keeps spreading um, throughout the brain. And over time, uh, areas, uh, more neurons get injured over time because of this inflammatory cascade that starts to take place. And when people have chronic traumatic encephalopathy, if they have injuries to the brain that control either autonomics or control of smooth muscles into their vague, the, the areas of the activate the vagus, they can have chronic gut issues. And that one of the key things is usually a timeline. They were playing a sporting event and severely injured their injured their had a they had a brain injury and were knocked out for a minute. Anytime you get knocked out, you're going to have significant injury to the brain, to neurons. Anytime there's loss of consciousness. They could have been in a car accident that had a severe brain injury. And they may have not noticed the symptoms till five years, six years, seven years later. So those types of patterns really require an understanding of how to dampen brain inflammation and neuroinflammation. Um, and that's you know beyond the context that we have time for, but it's basically a brain-related issue. Now, the key thing with those types of patterns is that inflammation will first shut down the brain and the gut gets shut down with it. So that's the key thing. When the, air, the brain gets injured and these prime glial cells get activated, anything inflammatory can then turn on these, these glial cells. So it could be, let's say they injured areas of the frontal cortex, which is involved with executive function. And those areas of the frontal cortex were injured, but it also impacted the motor strip, so they can't get enough input to the vagus to, to those areas of the motor strip. And now they have something that triggers an inflammatory response for them. Maybe it was a chemical response. Maybe it was benzene from car exhaust. Maybe it was a food protein they eat. Maybe they're sensitive to milk protein. They eat milk protein. Those inflammatory responses happen also in the brain. There's the inflammatory immune mechanism releases what are called cytokines, cell proteins. They've been shown to turn on these microglial cells in the brain, and you get brain inflammation activation. So now 
they notice that they can't focus, they can't, they can't concentrate, they have, to, they, have to sh- they have to shut down and take a nap, they can't do anything cognitively. At the same time, for the next couple of weeks, their gut function is totally abnormal. Those are clues to you that there could be these primed activated glial cells from a traumatic brain injury. And again, you're not going to fix those by just fixing the gut or, or taking a probiotic or taking a, a supplement. You may have to take those things to improve your health because since your brain gut access isn't working, you need enzymes to help you digest. You may need to be very careful with your fiber intake. If your brain gut access isn't working, you may end up getting severely constipated if you eat too much fiber. That takes place all the time. So that's the third group. So we talked about neurodegeneration. We talked about neurological autoimmunity. We talked about traumatic brain injury. And let's talk about the fourth group. And then we can start taking questions. Thanks for bearing with me. I know I just kind of ramble and talk. Um, but let's talk about the fourth group. So this is neurodevelopment. This is an entirely different group. This is obviously involved with kids. So when you're looking at normal brain development, um, you know, there's two types of um, tissues in the brain, white matter and gray matter. And gray matter is where your neurons are, and that fully develops by age six, seven, eight. And you have white matter, which is the pathways to each of these neurons. And this white matter fully develops around age 18, 19, 20, 21, but in your late teens, early adulthood. So, you know, once once we're born, our brain is constantly developing all the way through our, you know, early, uh, early adulthood. And our brain is still connecting and wiring itself. So, when kids have a developmental disorder, whether it eventually it's diagnosed somewhere along the autistic spectrum or ADD or ADHD, whatever expression of their neurodevelopment they have, areas of their brain are involved with activating the vagus. They're off. Um, they're not going to be able to have the best function. So you see kids that have neurodevelopmental disorders, many times they get bloating and distended every time they eat. They can't handle tolerate foods. They have leaky gut. They have... <laughs> Now, all these other related issues ongoing, no matter what they do for their gut and diet, nothing fixes it because there's a brain component to it. So so brain issues are a major part of that as well. So anyways, those are the main things. Uh, I'm going uh, to go over some questions here now. But those are the main things that are really involved uh, with, with this brain gut access. So let me just do a quick recap, and then we'll go through some questions. Okay. So the first thing... So as a, as a quick recap, the key thing is that if you have a chronic gastrointestinal problem and you just don't know what's going on, you've got to go through the diagnosis part of it. The biggest mistake people make is they keep searching for the perfect diet or they keep searching for the perfect supplement and they don't understand why. And when you don't understand why, you have very little effect. I mean, I think I've seen countless patients walk in my office with literally dozens and dozens and dozens of supplements that just out of desperation tried to improve their gut function, but they don't understand the mechanism. And that's why we designed, that's also why we developed the Gut Health Solving the Puzzle program so we can teach you how to go through that, hi, hey. go through that thought process. Now, if you have any indications of early Parkinson's disease, rigidity, stiffness, chronic frozen shoulder, tremor, that could be enough, that could be a major reason why you have um, some dysfunction in your gut because you have some neurodegenerative processes that impact the gut-brain access and the brain-gut access. If you have any history of autoimmunity, there's a possibility you may have some neurological autoimmune responses injuring areas of the brain that control the gut. If you've had a traumatic brain injury um, in your timeline um, where things start to go downhill a few years after that, that could be a factor why you may have chronic gut issues. You may have to really work on improving your brain health. And then lastly, 
if there's a neurodevelopmental disorder, there's got to be some really active efforts to support um, brain function. So, um, my lovely wife, Dr. Reyes, is here. She's going to help me. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Any questions? Yeah, we do. How's it going? Good. Good. Okay. A lot of questions. Okay. So, Sarah's asking. Um, she's wondering if mast cell misbehaving in the hippocampus can create an autoimmune-like issue with the vagus nerve. Mm, okay. Wow. First of all, you shouldn't have mast cells in your brain, in your hippocampus. That, that, that could only happen if you have serious breakdown of your blood-brain barrier infection in the brain. So, first of all, and if that's happening, you're in really, I mean, that's, that's, you're in the hospital. You know, these, so that's number one. Okay. And then was, what was the second part? Um, well, I crossed it. Um, can mast cell misbehaving in the hippocampus create an autoimmune-like issue in the vagus nerve? I don't know. It just seems really far-fetched. It's like, to me, I hear it, it sounds like someone throwing in a bunch of terms. I'm not saying it's you, maybe you've been told this or someone, but like, oh, mast cell and hippocampus in Vegas. Oh, that sounds really sophisticated. It's not really how this works. <laughs> First of all, hippocampus doesn't have any significant, hippocampus is not really directly involved with the pathways that connect to the vagus. They're more involved with circadian rhythm functions. Um, I mean, with all areas of the brain, there's some interconnectivity, but it's not a major one. I just think, uh, I, I don't know if that connection can exist. Okay. Yeah, let's go there. New, new <laughs> question, right? New question. New question. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, I missed a lot of your talk, okay. um, so I don't know what no you No problem. So if I ask yeah, questions, sure. you went over. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, so Andrea, hi, is saying, asking, is ringing in the ear a sign of brain inflammation slash damage? So ringing in the ear is basically tinnitus or tinnitus, uh, however you want to pronounce tinnitus. it. Tinnitus. So anyways, uh, <laughs> all that means is you have neurons close to threshold in your auditory pathway. So your auditory pathway is uh, your auditory nerve. Your auditory nerve fires to areas of your brainstem. And there's pathways from your areas of your brainstem into areas of your auditory cortex, temporal lobe. And any, anything that causes those neurons to fire, fire, for, fire closer to the threshold can cause um, ringing in the ear. So it's not really specific for anything. Um, you could have, uh, for example, you could have injured the receptors in your in your hearing pathway from loud music uh, when you were young, and and as you've gotten older, they're starting to spontaneously fire on their own. It's one of the aspects of cells when they generate these spontaneously fire on their own. And it's called epileptiform activity. Or you could have any kind of injury along that pathway or new generation along that pathway. Um, and have ringing in the ear. Most common cause of ringing in the ear is just injury to the actual uh, hearing receptors that start to show up as you get older. Um, but it's not specific for any one thing. All you know is those neurons are close to the threshold. Now, inflammation or injury to anywhere along those centers, including the receptors, may be part of it. Um, ototoxicity uh, is another one. Some, some, some people have severe adverse reactions or antibiotics and have some hearing loss and injury after that. Uh, you can look up those, just OTO, O-T-O, toxicity, um, and Google that, see if any medications are there. But it, it's, most times it's really hard to identify the cause and source of that. Okay, Jamie's asking, what kind of antibodies attack the brain, and what test measures this? Yes, yeah, so the antibodies, when it, so there's lots of different antibodies for the brain. Um, we'll give you a long list of them, but the general one... Um, is going to be something called myelin basic protein, okay? MBP. 
if you're going to do one single test, uh, myelin-basic protein. Now, there's myelin oligogenocytic protein, there's synapsin, there's tubulin, alpha-tubulin, beta-tubulin. Um, you can check enzymes in the brain, like GAT65. There's lots of different antibodies that can be checked. And um, sometimes they only express in one or the other. But if you're going to look at two most important ones to check, it would be myelin-basic protein antibody and myelin oligodendrocytic myelin oligodendrocytic glycoprotein. They're known as MBP and MOG antibodies. Okay. Um, okay. So someone is asking about, you talked about um, losing consciousness, right? Yeah. As, okay, so some, I think you confused some people. Some people are saying, do you mean like anesthesia from surgery? No, no. Or but, like, yeah, my reference was that, is if you have uh, injury to your brain that okay. then caused you to lose consciousness. So you have injury to your brain to the degree where it makes you lose consciousness. That means your injury was so significant, it deactivated an area called the reticular activating system. You need to have a lot of significant injury to do that. And that degree of injury is going to most likely turn on immune cells in the brain called glial cells to be primed. And then you can have ongoing inflammation susceptibility to your brain once those cells are primed. So it was only in reference to traumatic brain injury causing a loss of consciousness, not sedation or other types of things. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, Rebecca's asking, is your treatment for dysautonomia vagal toning exercises? And if yes, what else? <laughs> no, it's not vagal toning exercises. Uh, it's finding out what areas of the brain are injured to then activate the vagus. So I got to be honest with you, if, if I have a real life clinical case patient with dysautonomia, I know I'm going to spend four to six hours doing an exam because I got to find out what areas of the brain are involved. Then I know how to specifically activate them. And then I'm going to have to figure out at what level and what intensity I can activate those without them fatiguing and breaking down. So called this is a functional neurology model. And it's individualized based on the person's injury. So that's, that's the best answer I can give you. I don't have a general thing to, to share. Cause it's so specialized. It's, it's, it's so, so individualized. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, now, by the way, that's for rehabilitation. However, right. I just want to add a thing. If you can improve your environment of your brain with healthy nutrition and reducing your brain inflammation and healthy essential fatty acids, those things can help your brain to recovery. And then it's just a simple, simple concept. Whatever, if you have a brain injury, don't know what to do. Whatever you can't do is probably what you need to do. But at burst, you can handle. So if you can't handle moving your chair back and forth because you get dizzy, then you need to move your chair back and forth slowly at a rate that doesn't cause you dizziness to start to rebuild that center. And then that, that's your rehab. If you can't balance after a brain injury, then you need to do balance exercises, but, but at a rate that doesn't cause you to get totally exhausted. So maybe you just close your eyes for three seconds and then you take a break and then you repeat that throughout the day. And if you do too much, your brain will get really tired and you, and you fatigue. So even if you don't have access to someone to do a really thorough neurological exam on you and figure out what areas your brain need to rehabilitate, just make a list of all the things you have a hard time doing and then try to do those things at a less intense way and see if over time if you can do more of them. And if you are, you're starting to rebuild your brain. So that's, the, that's, that's something anyone can, can, can implement into their, into their life. Okay. Um, so Sean is asking, what are, so what would be brain-centric antibodies that one would should test if they have a history of celiac disease and suspected brain-related issues? Is there anything like... Well, the, if you have celiac disease, you can still test the, the proteins we talked about, myelin-basic protein and myeloglycoprotein. 
um, MOG and MBP. Those are those are the fundamentals. But if you have celiac disease, there's another enzyme you definitely have to check, and it's called uh, transglutaminase six. So transglutaminase two is the main uh, autoimmune uh, blood marker for celiac disease. Now, the tissues that are being attacked in the gut with exposure to gluten. But transglutaminase 6 is a mechanism in which gluten really causes neurological destruction. And actually, most people that have gluten sensitivity have brain destruction rather than gut destruction. It just happened that the gastroenterologist found celiac disease first and labeled it and named it. Mm-hmm. And many um, neuroimmunologists truly believe that gluten sensitivity not even celiac disease, but just gluten sensitivity, but especially celiac disease is, is without question a neurological disease because the majority of people that have it have this inflammation destruction of their brain. The lab marker for that is transglutaminase 6, not to be confused with transglutaminase 2. If, if you look at a lab report and it just says transglutaminase, it's transglutaminase 2. You always want to make sure it's transglutaminase 6. All your conventional labs uh, in medicine run it. And that's the test, too. If you have that, then you definitely are concerned for some neurological autoimmunity, and then you may want to get a brain MRI. If you get a brain MRI, you have to realize that um, you have to have 60% or greater destruction of your neuron myelin to show up on an MRI um, to capture that signal that you'll see with an MRI. So some people have MRI changes. Most people don't because they don't get that progressed. But if you have MRI changes, it's pretty obvious that you have some destruction happening with that. Okay. Okay. Elizabeth is saying, what part of the vagal nerve plays in the health of the gut function? Is there a specific part? Well, the, the vagus nerve has different parts. There's actually four different parts of nuclei. Um, two of them get input from your gut, like the trigeminal nucleus and interceptor processing into your gut. But the ones that we're really concerned about from the brain-to-gut uh, connection is a pathway, is a part of the vagus nerve called the nucleus ambiguous that controls your smooth muscles of your gut, like your palate. Um, in the Gut Health Puzzle Program, we talk about doing vagal exercises to activate that, like gargling is one of them. So when you gargle, you activate specifically an area of the vagus called the nucleus ambiguous that fires those muscles in the back of your throat when you're gargling, but also activates your gastrointestinal motility. And then there's a dorsal nucleus of the vagus, which controls the parasympathetic functions. So as far as brain to gut, those are the two nuclei, nucleus ambiguous and dorsal nucleus of the vagus. Okay. Um, do electronic vagal nerve stimulators have value? Yes, a good question. I don't know. Um, so there's different, when you look at the research circles and you look at the vagal stimulators, there's the ones that are used in medicine as implants, or they surgically implant a device, like just like a pacemaker in, and it activates the vagus. And that's been shown to be effective for many things, including chronic migraines and seizure activities and it's not typically used for gut disorders, but it's used for pretty much all these other uh, autonomic dysfunctions. And then there is like <clears throat> vagal stimulators that use the tongue. There's vagal stimulators that use the ear because there's some sensory pathways from the tongue and ear to the vagus. Then there's kind of like energy medicine vagal stimulators. Um, and, and they may or may not have some effects with people. And I think uh, some people, I've seen, like, I, don't, I don't use them personally in my practice, but I've had patients come in and they feel like it's made a huge impact for them and other patients that I feel like has no impact on them. Um, so I think it varies for, pe- for, for people to people. And it really may depend on how the input is actually activating the right centers of the vagus. Um, so for example, if you're using a earlobe stimulator to the vagus or a tongue, t- 
tongue activation pathway. Those are coming in through different projections and that may be coming in from the brain pathways, right? Yes. Okay, so Suzanne is asking, can celiac lead to MS or can it be connected? Yeah, many people that have celiac disease end up with another autoimmune disease and MS is one of the most common ones. So uh, if you have celiac disease that's been confirmed, you definitely have increased risk for all autoimmune diseases, and MS is one of the most common ones. Um, so it's always something you want to look for. Now, the key thing with celiac disease is you're 100% gluten-free. Like if you're not 100% gluten-free, there's some studies that have showed over a period of time, it's almost certain that you will get another autoimmune disease. So the key thing with celiac disease is that it's a genetic variation of uh, what are called HLA DQ subtypes, genetic subtypes, where T cells become super active. <laughs> and when these T cells, T cells are the immune cells that destroy um, your own tissue or pathogens or bacteria or viruses. The key feature of uh, celiac disease is that gluten triggers these T cells, and these T cells are so aggressive and so active that it can lead to severe destruction. And over a period of time, when people get autoimmune disease, they lose something called tolerance. And when they lose their tolerance, they get some significant reactions. And when their T cells are dysfunctioning and they lost tolerance, it's very likely they'll get another autoimmune disease. And MS is definitely on the list. Okay. However, you could have, by the way, you could have transcontaminase 6 antibodies with celiac and not have MS, but still have demyelination of the brain. And it technically wouldn't be considered MS. Can you say transcontaminase 6 again? Transglutaminase. Six. <laughs> number six. Yeah, number six. Okay, there you go. Yeah, hyphen six. Yeah, okay. So Mary's asking, and this is a circadian rhythm type question, so okay. you may do a talk on it later, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, can you expand on the circadian rhythm of the gut? Is there something we should do to support this? If we keep odd, irregular sleep hours, does this yes. negatively affect our gut? Yes. And would the intermittent fasting disrupt this? Uh, disrupt this? I don't understand that last part, but... Okay. The first part. There's, stand on it. Yeah, so there's an entire field of study researchers, research teams, departments where all they study is circadian rhythms. Yeah. And we typically think of the circadian rhythm as just like the day night cycle, which is absolutely part of it. Right. But cells throughout the body have been found to have their own circadian rhythms of how their metabolic processes work. And they overlap between our day night cycles to some degree, but they also have their own uh, functions. So um, if areas in the brain that are injured, that are involved with these circadian rhythm areas. The pineal gland is very important. The hippocampus is very important. Um, they can really disrupt our cellular uh, uh, mechanisms as well. And ultimately, um, if you have the normal routine every day where you eat kind of meals of the same part of the day, that's the best thing you can do to establish your circadian rhythm. Worst thing you can do is abnormal sleep cycles, abnormal meal times. And one of the best things you can do, which you mentioned, is intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting doesn't disrupt it. It actually helps it. If you get used to a feeding window of a certain period of time, like you do a um, intermittent fasting where you fast for 18 hours and eat for six, that can tremendously dampen inflammation, improve your gut function, and really help um, with reestablishing rhythms. In the um, program we just put together, uh, God Health Solving the Puzzle, which is now available, uh, today's, I think, the launch where it's totally available now um, for people that are on the wait list. Uh, we actually I, I have a section where I talk about how intermittent fasting is so critical for gastrointestinal recovery. Um, and it, it is a, definitely a key factor in circadian rhythms of the gut in a beneficial way. Okay. Thank you for the <laughs> pronunciations. Sorry. 
No, they're happier. Happy. Thank okay. you. Okay. Okay. Um, so, okay. Carol's asking, is hyperstimulation of the vagus possible? If so, how does that, yes. how does that manifest? You could have hyperstimulation of the vagus, which means you get, by the way, hyperstimulation of the vagus is a hiccup. If you have hiccups, you're having hyperstimulation of the vagus. <laughs> um, so increased gag reflexes, uh, nausea, where you feel like you're going to gag, those are all hyperstimulation of the vagus. They can happen from inputs from the gut going into the vagus. They can happen from inputs from the brain going into the vagus. So uh, both ways. Some people get hyperstimulation of the vagus if uh, um, they have certain memories. Some people get hyperstimulation of the vagus if they... Uh, you know, uh, have, eat something that really irritates their gut and they get those increased inputs to the vagus nerve. So you, you can definitely have hyperstimulation of the vagus and some people have, have that. And um, I've, like, I, I could be a case. I had a case uh, where a patient had hyperactivation of the vagus. She was having 20 to 25 bowel movements a day. She was getting dehydrated from excess bowel movements. The minute I had to open her mouth to just check her, her, her palate, which is part of her 10 vagus nerve, she started just to have spastic activity in her vagus her gag reflex was severely exaggerated or after i did a tongue blade thing she wanted to punch me in the face because <laughs> she was hyperactive for a while after that but then really the mechanism with her was she had microvascular disease on her mri we found she had multiple little tiny strokes all over her brain and those tiny strokes impacted her vagus and when you get injury neurons um, can't regulate themselves very well and they tend to spontaneously fire so you can't get it Okay, I'm going to combine a bunch of questions. Okay, combining a bunch of questions. Here we go. Okay, so the first one is actually, can you please talk about who could benefit from the new program being launched? People are a little bit confused as to... From the gut program? From the gut program being launched, yeah. Like who who what, can benefit what, from and, it? And, and not just that, but like where, what, what does it do? Like what do you, what is it... Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. So we have a gut, gut health solving the puzzle program. Yeah. And it's really designed to teach you how to look at certain symptoms and try to figure out if your gastrointestinal system is functioning. When it comes to the gastrointestinal system, it's not about what supplements you take necessarily. It's about figuring out the, the priorities of your gut. Now, in reality, everyone could benefit from it because you learn how your gut can dysfunction and you learn how to optimize and improve your gut. So even if you don't have very obvious gut dysfunction symptoms, you learn all the principles and concepts and ways you can support your gut. You can support your microbiome. You can support your intestinal barrier. You can prevent. You can try to support things like leaky gut if you get exposed to inflammatory foods. You can support digestive enzyme pathways. You can support your gallbladder. So it teaches those principles and concepts. If you're dealing with gastrointestinal issues, just need some help in figuring out what to do, um, then the course is really designed for for you very much for that reason. So it takes you through the process of the analysis of the thought process, so you can develop a personalized approach. See, what, the problem is that. Everything that's taught out there is a generalized approach. Here's the magic gut program. Here's your probiotics. You take this bundle of stuff forever or forever, <laughs> six weeks, and then you reset your gut and you go off all these foods and it's magic. You know, that's very limited. What you have to do is uh, not do that. You got to figure out how do you not do a generalized program to everyone? What or how do you develop an individualized program? And this is, the, this is why going to a practitioner makes the difference because a practitioner, a good one, isn't going to give you generalizable protocol, which actually, unfortunately, so many people do, is they kind of look, do analysis, and figure out what, what, what specific things may apply. Um, some people have to follow a FODMAP diet. Some people have to follow a gastric ulcer because their gut's irritated protocol. Some people have to follow a leaky gut protocol. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different uh, approaches there. So it's there to try to teach you 
instead of just following the next trendy thing or the next trendy supplement and to develop your eyes program. So that's that's what the gut health puzzle program is about. And we've we've developed some of these programs before at uh, Karajan, uh, Dr. K News, we call it the Karajan Research Center. We did one on save your brain. We did one on oral tolerance, which we talked about before, and this one's on gut health. So I think it's a good program for everyone, but especially if you have GI issues. Okay, so now here's part two. You kind okay, of part two. Doing, okay, it's three parter question that I'm combining here. Okay, so um, this is mainly uh, I'm trying to answer Alyssa's question. So then she's saying she bought the gut program, okay. but as she's going through it, now she's realizing and listening to you. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Maybe it's my brain. Maybe yeah, it's yeah. my brain first. Okay. So then, so she's saying what she, she says. She's excited for the information. It's really happy, but she's just confused. Right. Like, where does she start? She start with the gut. Does she start with the brain? Do you do both? Like, it's kind of a right. That's a common question. Right. So, so, so what it's you're feeling is, is honestly what practitioners feel. Yeah. <laughs> because you don't always know. Right. Um, the more you understand, have a better consciousness of how things can go wrong. The, the more likely you're going to figure out how to help yourself. Yeah. And to be quite honest, there's just sometimes trial and error. You know, in a real clinical scenario, uh, working with chronic patients, sometimes you could have five possible things happening, and then you try an intervention to see how they respond and not respond to certain things. If they if they try something, and it dramatically changes their function, you know that was the right something that needs more more attention. Versus you try something that has no effect, then you kind of move on. So there is some trial and error in a real in a real clinical scenario. There is no magic program, and even working with really highly skilled practitioners, they're going to have to do some trial and error to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So you know you have to start with knowing the concepts and information, and then kind of processing it to yourself, and then and then you might have to do trial and error uh, to really see what's going on. Now, even if you do have a brain related issue and causing your gut issues, you still have to optimize your gut That's because right. because of the brain related issue. Your gut's not going to function well. So maybe because you're a brain-related issue, you have to take enzymes to have proper digestion. And if you don't, you don't digest foods as well. But now you're not feeling like you have this cursed gut no one can figure out. You know that when your brain starts to function better, you're, you may be less dependent upon enzymes. You know, There's some days where you don't even need them at all. And days you have a bad brain day, uh, your gut really is a, is a problem. So you start to understand those connections. But that's the most important thing is to realize you know there is some trial and error. There is working through... Uh, through the process of it as well right yeah it's very true okay so that was that you kind of answered the third part of that okay. question so okay. thank you um it, so people are saying so when you're doing so which which one do you would you recommend first sorry you didn't get that part which course would i recommend first the brain or the gut yeah uh, I, I don't i don't know <laughs> you have to kind of decide for yourself uh maybe we'll get more symptoms in well, here's the thing. If you have a if you have a if you have a brain related issue, you're still gonna have to treat the gut, right? <laughs> and then because it goes the other way too, people take the brain course and goes, I think part of my brain issues maybe my gut, because we talk about those relationships. And then they go, well, you know, what do I do for my gut? If you have a brain gut issue, like not everyone has a brain gut issue. If you have a brain gut issue, you probably have to learn both parts of the puzzle and see what 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 you respond to best, right? Some people just have a gut issue. Some people just have a brain issue. But if it's a brain gut access issue, you're, you're going to probably need to do both. If you start with one, I would probably say, I don't know. <laughs> but start with the gut because you're going to have to make sure – like gut is such a central part of reducing inflammation, improving your health, and all those things. Just realize it may not be the only thing, especially if, you've talk, if you have some of these mechanisms we talked about in this talk. Okay. Yeah. So um, if you are gluten-free, yes. but then you – accidentally got exposed to mm-hmm. gluten yeah is there anything to do to stop that that cascade like if you how can you yeah. lessen it 
Not like, oh, if I take these, then I can have gluten. But like, Right. We talked about that in the gut program. Yeah. So if you get exposed to gluten, there are some enzymes that have been shown to break down gluten quickly. And the key thing is you guys remember, your immune system reacts to a whole protein. And what you normally do when you digest proteins is you break them down into amino acids, like it was whole protein, then gets broken down to individual amino acids. And, uh, I'm sorry, eventual peptides, which are branches of the protein, and then from peptides to individual tiny little amino acids. The immune response can't take place when it gets broken down to amino acids. It can only it can only bind to peptides and proteins. So the sooner you can break down that protein and digest it, the less immune reactive it becomes. So taking digestive enzymes are very important. Um, DPP-4 proteases are enzymes specifically shown to break down gluten. There's other branches of those enzymes too, but that's a very common one. So you can take those if you get exposure to gluten to help, you know, break down the gluten particle as soon as you can so it doesn't keep triggering the immune response. And then there's lots of uh, botanicals that have been studied in the celiac disease that get activated um, through specific immune pathways like interleukin-17, interleukin-12, interleukin-13. And things like aloe vera extract can help calm that inflammation. Uh, luteolin is a flavonoid. So there's flavonoids like but the most, uh, I would say aloe vera is very effective as an extract. Okay. Um, Emily's asking, can people always recover from food intolerances? What happens when you have so many intolerances that you can't tolerate the supplements for things like gut dysbiosis? Well, there are people that get significant food intolerances and one after the next, after the next, after the next. And that is really something referred to as losing oral tolerance. It's an actual area of study in the field of immunology. It's not weird. It's very well known. And when people lose their oral tolerance, they'll continue to react to foods and more likely start to react to chemicals and then have an autoimmune disease at some point. So or if they already have it. So, so those are all related to concepts of tolerance. There are some dietitian lifestyle strategies you can do to try to improve your tolerance. Um, we created a whole program for that called the uh, 3D Immune Tolerance Program. And it goes into those concepts. What degree of effect you have is varied. Some people can go through that program and, and implement those strategies and have some nice effects. Some people, they're so progressed and they've lost so much tolerance that it's not going to have much of an effect with them. So it varies from person to person. And ultimately, you have to kind of just improve your health as a general concept to improve your immune tolerance. But uh, that's the other thing, too, is like when you start to not feel well, like you got to jump on top of it. If you keep waiting, you 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 can't have this immune response really wind up and it's really, really hard to untangle. Okay. When you say the gluten enzyme again, um, Mardell loves your talks, but your fastness? I'm sorry. It's uh, DPP4 protease. <laughs> that's fastness. That's funny. Okay. Um, Mira is asking, are there different protocols for children or can this gut vessel work for children? Well, Yes, they can work with children with the except like it, can they swallow a supplement? You know, like right. we had our time with our daughters being able to swallow oh, supplements. <laughs> we had to find uh, powders and things to do and whatever we need to use supplements yeah. and liquids. Um, but all the all the food and, and nutritional recommendations apply for someone who's eating regular food. Like if they if they're eating out of a formula breastfeeding, that applies. If they're, if they're able to chew and on their own and swallow and digest food, all the same principles we talk in the gut health program apply to them as well. They just have to, you know, um, maybe uh, take a smaller proportion of the supplements if they if they need to take a supplement for a mechanism than other people. You know, like an adult may a child may need to take one capsule digestive enzymes, 
to help digest the food where an adult may need to take three or four to really get the best effect. So, but then again, you never know. You have some kids end up like taking six capsules before they can right. digest their food. So it's, it's definitely transferable from adults to kids. Okay. Um, do you know anything about red light therapy? I don't know much about red light therapy. Okay. People ask me. Some people ask me about it. Okay. Let's see. Okay. Can, would you recommend that a powder digestive enzyme for people having yeah. problems with swallowing pills? Yeah. By the way, if you have problems swallowing pills yeah. and you're an adult and you used to be able to swallow pills, that's a really red flag. You have a brain to gut access issue. Say that again. If, if you have problems swallowing pills... And it's not something you've had your whole life. Right. It just started to happen as you got older over time. That is a red flag that you may actually have a brain gut access issue, a vagal swallowing issue. It's called dysphagia. You, like, you can't swallow. Um, everything we talk about in this talk applies <laughs> to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, you'll have to use powders or whatever you can to make it work. Sometimes you just have to open up the capsule and just put in some water and drink it. That's fine, too. Okay. Um, last question. Uh, sure. Uh can you please say again the things to do to stimulate the vagus? Yeah, the, um, there's lots of things you can do to stimulate the vagus. Uh, and if you get a chance to read my book, Why Isn't My Brain Working? Yeah. There's a whole chapter on that. And the gut health puzzle program, we go over it. The easiest one, simplest one um, to do is just to take water and then gargle aggressively with it. And when you gargle aggressively with water, you activate the smooth muscles, you activate the nucleus and vagus of the vagus that activates input to the gut to really start to activate um, motility and movement and even activates autonomic function, like parasympathetic function, like getting blood flow to the gut and enzyme release. Now, you can swallow, people always ask, do you gargle the water, do you spit it out? You can swallow it or spit it out, it doesn't really matter. All that matters is that you have X amount of time, uh, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, where you're gargling. You can gargle for 10 seconds, swallow, and then take, take another sip, gargle for another 10 seconds and swallow. And then finish it like a large glass of water a couple times a day. Those would be the easiest way to start implementing some vagal exercise. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, more, but if you're... <laughs> okay, thank you everyone for joining us. Hope you found some information that was useful. Please uh, check out um, the Gut Health Solving the Puzzle program. We put a lot of time and energy into it. I think it's a great program at Dr. K News. And thank you for joining us and follow us and all the things that go along with supporting us. Thank you. Appreciate it. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about. 